0: So when I was growing up, my favorite TV sitcom was Family Ties. And there's a personal reason for that. I grew up in West Tennessee. And in West Tennessee, back in the 80s, to get elected, you had to have a D beside your name. Blue Dog Democrats. Okay? And that's the way it was. And my grandfather was the bluest Blue Dog Democrat you've ever met. And the show Family Ties, if you remember, is about, some of you don't even remember it or never watched it, don't know what it's about. It was about a couple of baby boomer liberal hippies, that's their own term, I'm not slandering anybody, who got married and the first kid they had was a Reagan Republican. And it caused all kinds of comedic fun. Well, here's the thing, now... Y'all remember the song by Alabama, Song of the South? How many of y'all remember that song, Song of the South, Sweet Potato Pie? And a... See, some of you got that right. And uh, there's a line in there about the fact that his granddaddy voted a Democrat and they ought to get a rich man to vote like that, right? Well, my grandfather was that, and my whole mom's side of the family was that, and my dad was an R, And every year at family gatherings, now, you realize, this is one of those things that you'll remember. Political debates used to be somewhat civilized. Right? Y'all remember that? Like, you could have discussions about stuff? And so every year at Thanksgiving or Christmas, we'd sit around the table, and they'd start teaming up on my dad. And my dad would fight back, and they'd have discussions and when Reagan won, it was the greatest day for my dad, as he talked about it with him. And in the, in the show Family Ties, one of the main characters, the main character, was a guy named Alex P. Keaton, which is Michael J. Fox, who got his start. And in the midst of that, he wants to be a successful Republican adult. And his parents loathe everything about what he wants to become. Now here's why the show worked, though. It's because they did it with comedy. But the point of the show was, no matter what might divide them, as a family, they are always bonded together. And that their similarities as a family always overcame the differences that they had about politics or life. There were ties that bound a family together. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about a question. We'll get there in a little bit. We're not going to give it to you right away. A question that if we took seriously from Scripture would tie our families together better than they've ever been. Now I say that realizing that we live in a day when there seems to be more things trying to divide the family than there has ever been. There's just a general cultural understanding of marriage and family. That is not what you would want for families to stick together. This casual relationship that we have with families and marriage and sticking together and making it through and commitment that we talked about last week. An entertainment industry that not only gives us different views of what families ought to be, but also spends quite a bit of time in our lives as we can stream stuff wherever, whenever, for whatever, as we watch it. We talked last week about that sometimes opportunity is the enemy of family because we want to do so much. And we can't miss out. We can't miss that trip. We can't miss that activity. We can't miss that season. We can't miss that production. And in our world even as something as simple as what I have in my hand here on the platform preaching from technology. I started reading an interesting book this week called Irresistible about um, the way that we are becoming addicted to technology. And it tells the story of the fact that um, it's a kind of a striking opening uh, couple of paragraphs because it starts with the description that Steve Jobs gave for the first iPad revolutionary device, change the way we live. And then it says, but he would never give one to his kids. Steve Jobs, that helped invent the iPad, refused to let his kids have one. The founder of Twitter doesn't let his kids have technology. The editor of Wired Magazine, that is uh, the industry standard for upcoming technology, has strict time limits on his kids and will not let them use it in their own room the study they found that today the average person spends over three hours a day on their phone and if you put that together over a lifetime that's eleven years spent on a phone in fact they've uh, psychologists have coined a new phobia you know what a phobia is right new fear and that is nomophobia and that doesn't mean you have no fear it means that you are afraid of no mobile phone everything seems to be pulling us apart And the question that we want to ask today is what is it that ties us together So we're going to ask one question. It's going to take us a minute to get there. I want to build the case before we get there. And so we're not going to give it to you right away. I'm going to tease it. We're going to think about it. But I want us to remember a couple of things that we learned last week as we started this series of my real family. And the first thing that we need to remember is that there are no such thing as married people issues. We only have single people issues that get worse in marriage. Marriage doesn't create problems, it exposes them. It's okay to amen that, alright? Now, I wanna, uh, I was watching some basketball over the last few days. I got a chance to go watch Tennessee play down at Bridgestone Arena and watch them lose their final game of the year probably. And I've been watching some, Eli and I watched some basketball this weekend following the ACC tournament and the SCC tournament. And one of the games that happened this weekend was Duke and Louisville. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but four years ago, Duke and Louisville played in the Elite Eight. And as they're playing in the Elite Eight, Louisville had a player named Kevin Ware who went up to block a three-point shot. And when he landed, his leg snapped in two. Does anybody remember that? Okay. Okay. He couldn't play the race. He's one of their best players and they didn't know what was going on. But I mean, it was, it was one of those scenes that people around that were watching both teams got almost physically ill. Now here's what's crazy about that. When you watch the replay, he didn't do anything that looked out of the ordinary. He jumped up to block a shot like he had done many, many times. He landed like he landed many, many times, but it broke. Looked like a normal jumping and landing, but it snapped. And Sorry about this, but it snapped his shin bone in half and it tore through the skin. As they analyzed it, they said there was something already wrong with the bone because that kind of pressure would not have broken that bone in that way. The jump and the landing didn't create the problem. It revealed it. Now, in the same way, the pressures of marriage... Don't create problems in our hearts. It just reveals what's already there. Some of us don't want to admit that because we want to blame our spouse. We want to blame our problems on people around us or our friends or our circumstances. But the truth is that most of the problems in marriage is just the unearthing of existing problems in the spouses and your heart. Selfishness impatience, control issues, anger that were already there. Paul tells us another something about marriage. He says that marriage is supposed to reveal to us something about what the love of God looks like as we love one another. Sometimes when I do these series on marriages, people say, well, why are you doing a series on marriage? Why are you doing a series on family? Like, um, you know, 50% of marriages fail, so, so you're talking to half the people when you talk any week. We've got so many single people in our world, and people are getting married later in life. Two reasons that we're doing this. First of all is because our focus is on the human heart and what is revealed about it in marriage and how it shows us who we are and our need for a Savior. And secondly, even those people that aren't in marriage or coming out of marriage need to understand the dynamics of it. If they're single never been married, they need to understand what they're getting into. One of the things that I always do with couples that I'm counseling and premarital counseling is I give them this this test, and one of the things the test gives me is their marriage expectation level. Can I tell you something? Nobody's ever scored low on that. And the lower is what the test wants. Because they want you to be realistic about your marriage. But most people, they want the range to be between 40 and 60. Most people are at 85 to 95. There'll be questions on that. These are actual questions that people answer. Nothing that I've discovered about my spouse has disappointed me. And people agree completely with that. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, I know the two of you. Now think about that question. Those of you, how many of you have been married more than three days? Look at that. All right. Congratulations to you. All right. If you were asked and your spouse wasn't around or know how you would answer this question, everything I've ever discovered about my spouse, nothing has disappointed me. Like, it just those expectations. One of, it's, one of the questions on there is, I don't ever expect us to have a major disagreement. Agree completely. Like, what are you talking about? Like, there are going to be disagreements. You know the old statement, right? If two people agree on everything, one is unnecessary. Right? I'll let you decide which of the two of you is unnecessary, which will lead to an argument that you can then have. Right? Right? It helps us to know what's coming. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a principle that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 5. Take your Bibles open there. It's probably not a surprise to you if you know your Bible that we're going there talking about marriage. And what Paul's going to teach, we're going to try to summarize in one question. That if you would ask this question in your relationships, it would transform them. It's one of the secrets to happiness Not just in your marriage relationship, but in all family relationships, and in fact, in all relationships you have in life. Now again, I'm not going to give you the question until about halfway through, because I want to let Paul build the case for it, build the reasoning for it. But I'm warning you, it's very counterintuitive, and at first it's going to seem like, of course that's what you would say in church. Of course that's what you would say in a sermon, but I want us to really think about the implications of the question and whether or not we're willing to do that. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And we're picking up literally in the middle of a sentence. In fact, if your Bible has this starting a sentence, verse 21, as the start of a sentence, it's missing the translation. Submitting to one another in the fear of, of Christ, So he starts this whole teaching about the marriage relationship saying, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. All right, we're going to leave that up, but go back to that for a second, Steve. We're going to leave that up for a minute, all right? Because these are the least controversial verses in all of Scripture. Right? No, wrong, right? This is the, these are the verses when you see someone on TV that doesn't like the Bible and wants to diss the Bible, they'll say, oh, you can't obviously believe the Bible. It's so backwards. You realize that it says in your Bible that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Let me say this, first of all. Sadly, this verse has been used incorrectly for the subjugation of women many times. But that is only because it's been misunderstood and lifted out of context. Now, I want to tell you two quick observations about it. Then we're going to move on in a moment. But let me tell you two quick observations. First of all, we have to understand who this verse is written to. Who is this verse written to? What's the first word? Wives, okay? Husbands, this is not written to you. You get your own verse in a minute. It was not written to you to have a tool to wield over your wife. If God intended for you to use it that way, he would have said, husbands, your wives are supposed to submit, but he doesn't. One pastor I read this week said, husbands, stay out of your wife's verse. You don't like her messing with your stuff, don't mess with her verse. All right? Secondly, and this is important, verse 22, where's where this starts, comes after verse what? 21. This is a remarkable thing. 22 follows 21. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about when Jesus was preaching, he didn't have verse numbers down there. They didn't have chapter headings. They didn't divide things up. When Paul's writing, he didn't section his letters out. He just wrote them. And so when they're writing this, it's not like there's a hard paragraph break between verse 21 and verse 22. And verse 21 tells who to submit to each other. Who's that written to? All people, every, all, we're all to be submitting to each other, wives to husbands, husbands to wives. Wives submit to your husbands is a specific application of a principle that Jesus gives to every follower of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to deny that that has some unique applications and implications for women in marriage. Just that this verse in the overall context of the whole way of looking at relationships, that is different. Paul is setting forth a different dynamic, a different paradigm with which to look through the lens of our relationships. And as you do that, you can't separate verse 22 from verse 21. Now, here's what I would say. I do not expect an unbelieving culture to get that difference. Okay. I don't expect an unbelieving, lost culture to suddenly understand the implications of biblical study and interpretation. But I do expect that as believers, we understand it. The wives are given a specific application of verse 21. Then are the husbands done the same. Husbands. Again, who's this one written to? All right. Wives, stay are your husband's verse, all right? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. You want to know the most difficult of those two commands? It's the husbands. Now, I know some of your wives are like, you don't know my husband. Now, don't say that to him right now, but I'm saying you might be thinking that. But we're called as husbands to love our wives just as Christ loved the church. Both the husband and the wife submit themselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. The husband does so by laying down his life for his wife. Paul says that this is the mystery of the gospel. Something stupendous to look into and to gaze upon and to understand. And it's supposed to teach us what it means to live and to love like God and to be loved by God. If you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians, I want you to turn to the next book over, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. It's literally two or three pages over there. Some of your Bibles, you've got the giant print, maybe it's five but just a couple of pages over. I want you to look at what it says here in Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. It goes on to say this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now here's what I want us to use for just a moment to think about Ephesians chapter 5. I want us to remember Philippians 2. I want to ask you a couple of questions as we think about submitting to one another, as we're building a case for the question that will come, that will change the way we live in our relationships. First question I want to ask you. Was Jesus equal to God? Is Jesus equal to God? Yes, of course He is, right? If not, then what we've been preaching, what we've been teaching is for naught, no. it's, it's, Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen that we are to be um, pitied among all men if we don't believe in Christ's resurrection from the dead, that gave us proof of his divinity. Of course, he's God, but he voluntarily submitted himself to the Father. Now, let me ask you a question: Does that mean that somehow Christ became less than who he is by submitting to his Father? No. You do know, I think I'm asking you trick questions. No. It's not an assault on his dignity. It did not imply any inferiority on his part. He was fully equal to God. And if it was an assault on his dignity to do that, it's not an assault on yours as a husband or a wife to submit yourself to one another either. In fact, submission makes you more like Christ. And what Christ did is an example to us as men to lay aside our glory, to lay aside our comfort, to leverage our power, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our families. What he did is an example to you ladies. He laid aside his glory. He laid aside his comfort. He leveraged whatever power he had, not for his own benefit, but for the power and the benefit of others. And there are two phrases in that passage we just read that are absolutely counterintuitive. If you were noticing as we read through them, they were highlighted on the screen. And the first one comes in verse 3 that says, count others, consider others as more important than yourselves. Consider others and their interests as more important than themselves. Now, here's the truth. As I walk around on a day-to-day basis, I recognize that you have interests, that people around me have interests. And I want to be empathetic to the interests that people around me have. But here's the truth. Their interests, people's interests, are almost always secondary in my life to my own interests. Now here he's telling us to think about somebody else's interest as more important than our own. And then a little later in verse 7 we see where it says, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Assuming the form of a servant. What do powerful people do? They leverage their power to maintain their power, and to accomplish their agenda. When I have power, I leverage it for me. When I have the money, when I have the position, I'm using it to serve me. That's the general ways of the world. If I know that I'm in the right, that's a kind of power I press for my rights and I demand them. But Jesus had these things. And he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Now, here's the truth. You don't usually take the form of a servant. You're usually assigned the role of a servant. But Jesus took it. Assumed it. And then verse 9 tells us this. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and gave Him the name that is above every name, So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. He took the low road. So God gave him the high place. He took the role of a servant. So God gave him the name that is above every name. The very important thing we see here is God takes responsibility to exalt those who humble themselves. The way up is the way down. It's completely counterintuitive to the way the rest of the world lives. A couple more biblical examples. You do have to turn to these, but they're powerful. First of all, Mark chapter 10, James and John, Jesus, two of his closest disciples are coming and they say, hey, Jesus, we have a favor to ask. We want to give it to us if that's okay. He says, okay, what is it? They says, when you get into your kingdom, we want to sit at your right and left hand. We want to be your VP and Secretary of State. We want to be right there with you in your new kingdom. That's how things work, right? Right? And the transition of power that has happened in our country over the last few months, our president, Donald Trump, has assigned people to positions of leadership that were loyal to him during his campaign. Some people get upset about that, particularly when they don't win. But guess what? When Barack Obama won President of the United States, he assigned people to leadership positions that were loyal to him during his campaign. When George W. Bush won the presidency, he assigned leadership positions to people that were supportive of him during his campaign. This is how things work. Jesus, we've been with you from the beginning. When you take your kingdom, we want to be right there. We stuck with you, Jesus. We've been loyal We bought when the stock was low. When you're in power later, we'd really like to sit in your section of heaven. We'd like to be right there beside you, your right hand and your left hand. And listen, nobody's going to protect you like we do. We want the good seats, Jesus. This is how Jesus answers them. He says, but it shall not be so among you. So that's how the people of this world think, but that's not how it's going to be with you. You know this, right? Whoever be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must be first must be slave of all, because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's a revolutionary view of power. Someone would use their power to give it to someone else. Or perhaps the most classic example in Scripture from John chapter 13. On the night before Jesus died, he and his disciples are gathered around, and it says in verse 4 of chapter 13, he laid aside his outer garment, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Let me just ask you a question. If you weren't in church where you know you're supposed to say things spiritually, and I was just out in the out in the general world, and I ask you to wash a stranger's feet. What would your first thought be? No. Why? What if I said, "Hey, could you wipe their arm off a little bit?" You might be okay. That's all right, right? Could you could you wipe the Could you wipe their forehead a little bit? Yeah. Can, can you get down there and wash their feet? Now, I see some grimaces. Why? Because feet are dirty, nasty, gross, vile. Right? I've heard people say sometimes, boy, they have some pretty feet. No, I've never seen that in my life. All right, that'd be gross today. But we've talked about this. In their day, it would have been worse. I told you last week we got a brand new, brand new uh, fur baby at the house. Stella. She's adjusting much better. Um, Eli no longer lets her stay with him because he doesn't want to be up at three o'clock in the morning taking her out. She doesn't get up anymore at three o'clock in the morning. I said, Susan, for some reason we went back to having a newborn. That was not wise. She's adjusting. She loves us. It's great. But when you have animals around, you're on constant guard because they can't tell you when they've got to do certain things, right? Now, listen, I know you lost an hour of sleep, but you don't want me to go there, right? Okay. Now imagine that your only modes of transportation are walking or animals. And the streets that you're walking are going to be filled with those things we take our animals out to do. To use it in phrases that my kids would understand, there was pee-pee and poopy everywhere on the streets. Now what kind of shoes did they wear back then? Nike, shocks loafers what they wear sandals now what's the major characteristic of sandals open toed shoes now another thing had they ever heard of a spa that gave pedicures no did they know what nail clippers were some of you were like please stop it's not close to lunchtime you got time to recover all right These were not nicely manicured feet where Jesus slipped off their Versace loafers and their satin socks and dabbed their feet with hot lemon-fresh towels. These were dirty, humiliating, to use a phrase, stanky feet. It was the worst work of a servant. And here's the Lord who deserves all power and glory and might and strength about whom in the book of Revelation it describes him in terms that can only be thought of as a magnificent and holy and otherworldly. Laying it aside, picking up a towel, and washing feet. Then not just any dirty feet. In just a few hours, these are the same feet that would carry disciples away from Jesus as they fled from Him in His greatest hour of need. Washing their feet may have been the clearest picture of the cross that He gave them that night. Even clearer than the bread and the cup. Because in just a few hours, He would take off the garments of glory. He would lay aside His power and His right to rule. And He would clothe Himself in the garments of shame so that we could be washed in His blood. And John 13, 12 says, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And what he basically tells us is in this life, in places where we have the phrase, Lord, teacher, boss, head, we are use it to serve, not to be served. Husbands. Whatever power you have, you use it to serve your wife. Wives, whatever power you have, you submit it to your husbands to serve him. People will say, but he, she doesn't deserve it. Did the disciples deserve to have Jesus wash their feet? Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. They don't deserve it and Jesus does. Christianity is being so overwhelmed by the grace that God has given to you that you become someone that is willing to serve anybody in your relationship with. You're willing to say, I love you and I'm so grateful for you and for the grace that God has given me in saving me that I would gladly serve anyone else in honor of serving you. My favorite hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross. Has that great last stanza that says. Were the whole realm of nature mine. It wouldn't be enough. Love so amazing so divine. Denands my life. My soul. My all. Elise Fitzpatrick, who's a writer on marriage, says that the primary point of marriage is to teach you to wash the feet of another sinner. Now, many people in our world think the primary point of marriage is to fulfill all of our needs and make us happy. You completely, you had me at hello, which is why people are frustrated, because it's not working. But God's primary purpose in marriage is not to make you happy, it's to make you holy. God is more concerned with your character than your comfort. And how do you learn to be holy? How do you learn to develop character? By washing the disgusting, betraying, self-centered feet of another sinner. People out in the world say, man, I think I just married the wrong person. Of course you did. By God's design, we always marry the wrong person because you marry a sinner. But the wrong person is the right person for you because God has a higher agenda for your life than giving you a flawless roommate. His agenda is to make you more like Him. Now, that doesn't mean you go find the person you hate the most and say, I'm just going to wash your dirty feet all my life. The thing about marriage is, it's a blessing because you get to be with someone you love. But after that infatuation wears off, there's something about that person that you continue to serve. And what we have to remember is every person that is married is married to someone that had such a significant flaw in their life that Jesus had to die to fix it. And so if you're like, well, my wife is perfect, no. And we must remember that every person in a marriage is someone that did something that was so bad, had a character flaw so bad that Jesus had to die to fix it. And if it's so bad that Jesus had to die to fix it, it's going to cause you some irritation. No amens there? So here's the question, all right? Here's the question that can transform your spouse, your family, your relationships, your workplace, your employees. If you asked this question and did what the answer was, it would change everything. It's a simple question and it's this. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to serve you? What if every time you walked into a room, that's the question you ask of whoever was in that room and then you obeyed it? What if when a husband walked in from work, saw his wife, the first question he asked her was, Honey, what can I do to serve you tonight? And then you did it. Sometimes husbands and wives have this little competition going, and they stand their ground firm in it about who's had the harder day. So you come home from work, and you've been, guys have been coming home from work. It's been a really tough day. Things have been, you know, things haven't gone quite as well as you'd like for them to. And you walk in, and as you walk into the house, uh, the wife with the, the three kids has one of the kids just held out to you, like, I've been waiting, here she, here she is. And you're like, honey, it's been a terrible day. I don't want to hear about your terrible day. Here's the kid. But I think my day, you know, I, don't, I want you to hear about, I don't want to hear about your, I don't want to hear about your day. I want a moment. Here's the kid. I'll be in the back. And then they sit, at, they sit at, the lunch, at the dinner table. It's like, you wouldn't believe what happened today. at work. You wouldn't believe what happened today. And they talk past each other the whole time because they're so concerned about proving themselves and their interests best. Instead of asking the question, what can I do to serve you? Men. What have you asked that question not just in your head and think you get credit for thinking it every now and then. What have you actually asked that question? Some of you are scared to do that because you're afraid of what she might actually say. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord from the men today? I got a couple, all right. Uh, everybody else too scared to say anything right now. But that question is powerful and unlocks the key to happiness in your marriage. Some of our wives are afraid to ask us to help them. They feel the resistance that they are walking up to us. You start saying this, you watch how it transforms your marriage. What if when you chose what to do on your day off or in your retirement or where to go on vacation or where to go out to eat, your first thought was, how can I serve her? What if this were true romantically? What are her affections, needs from me? What if you just started taking leadership in your family by serving your family? You're no longer disengaged. The primary sin of most men is that we are complacent when it comes to taking the initiative that is intended for us to be the spiritual leaders of our home. And it's not a new problem. When you look back to the Old Testament, one of the most tragic stories in the Old Testament is when David lost his children, and specifically his son. And it says his son comes to reconcile, and David leaves him outside the gate and doesn't engage with him. He's just complacent. Men are zealous about their jobs. They're zealous about their hobbies. But then you come home and you're on autopilot with your families. Your wife's unhappy, but you don't care as long as she doesn't nag or cheat or leave with you. Then she'll threaten something and you fix yourself for a couple of days, three months, and then it's back to the same way. Men were made to be leaders. And by that, we are to follow the example of Christ who was a servant leader. Taking the initiative for the benefit of of others spiritual headship is not a license to do what we want to do it is empowerment to do what we ought to do the first crown that I wear in my family as the leader of my family is a crown of thorns of suffering of service just as my savior did 90 percent of the disagreements in my house would not be there if I just took the initiative to say I'm going to serve my family I'm going to serve my wife I'm going to serve them well Ladies, what would happen if you started asking that question, meaning it and obeying, following through what God calls you to do in the midst of it? Now, here's the truth. Most of the time, you're going to ask men, and they're going to say, Oh, no, nothing. But just asking lets them know that you care. What if that became the attitude in the home that you created? How would treat them when they come home or when you turn back from a trip or when you see them after a long day? What do you, how would it treat how they do on their day off? How would it build them up in your communication with them and your desire to help them to grow into the man that God has called them to be? How would it serve them if you ask, what can I do to serve you? What it would look like if our kids started to ask that question of mom and dad. If teenagers started to say, hey, mom, dad, what can I do to help you? Now, I advise the teenagers in the second service that if they ask that question, they probably need to be ready to catch. Because most of their parents are going to faint when the question is actually asked. But what if they said, hey, mom, dad, how can I help you? Or better yet, just took initiative to do what you know would serve your family. How would your relationships at work change? Whether you're the boss or an employee, if that's the way you lived your life, asking the question, how can I serve you? Say it to your boss this week. Boss, say it to your employees. Change the environment of the work. What if we took this attitude and we were wrong? I'm hurt right now. But what can I do to serve you? One of the people's feet that Jesus washed had literally already betrayed him to death. Now, please, here, I'm not talking about physical abuse or keeping yourself in a situation where you're unsafe. You should get out of that unme- immediately. But I'm saying, what if even when you're wrong, you wash the feet of the other person who was doing the wrong? What would happen if you started to ask this one simple question in all your relationships? For some of you, everything would change. The gospel would saturate your marriage. It would saturate your family. It would saturate your life. It would make it new. It would tie your family together greater than it's ever been. And so here's my challenge to you for this week. My challenge for you is to say at least one time a day, every day this week, to the people in your families, what can I do to serve you? At your workplace, what can I do to serve you let's do it just as a trial you say it with me all right on the count of three. One, two, three. what can i do to serve you some of you had a little problem getting that out all right you know what that emotion is called fear fear what they might actually say and that our needs won't be taken care of well You're scared to obey. Welcome to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, where every step of faith will be accompanied by fear. Which is why I want to go back to that original verse we looked at, the first one. We submit to one another, not for the other person, not because we're trying to get brownie points. We submit to the other person. Why? In the fear of Christ. Here's what I'll tell you. First of all, most things that you fear will never happen. But you have to believe if you, like Jesus, take the low road, God will take care of your needs. Some of you say, well, listen, if I do this, they'll never change. They're going to be taking advantage of me all the time. And that may be true. But one of the biggest mistakes we make is believing that we somehow change people by paying them back, by making them feel the pain that they feel when they wrong us. Here's a little secret from the gospel. The most powerful change agent on the planet is grace. That's how God changed me. That's how we change our families is grace. We do it out of reverence for Christ. Verse 21, I mentioned it starts in the middle of a sentence. Some English translations mess that up. In Greek, submitting to one another is the last clause that begins with a sentence in verse 18 that says, Be filled with the Spirit. And then gives you a bunch of ways that being filled with the Spirit shows up in your life, including the fact that we sing hymns to one another, psalms to one another, spiritual songs, giving thanks always for everything. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, shows up in your life is that you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The ability to submit to your spouse, to submit to your kids, to submit to your boss, to submit to your employees is a supernatural power that the Spirit of God has to give you. And He does it in and through the Gospel as you grow in reverence for Christ. So this week, in your families, spouses, children... Some of you that have children that have moved away, shock them to death. Call them up and just say, What can I do to serve you? Grandchildren. Some of you are like, I don't have a problem with that. I know you don't. That's what grandparents are for, right? And employment in other areas. Simple question What can I do to serve you? Let's pray together.